Uh, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 17-34. Hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you're uh, new with us, we've been walking through this letter called 1 Corinthians, a first century letter that time and time again we've noticed has 21st century relevance, and it was written to a little urban church that could best be described a beautiful mess. When Jesus breaks into our lives, he comes offering freedom, he comes offering forgiveness, and he makes us beautiful. And yet, simultaneously, we're a mess still, aren't we? I mean, we have our dysfunctions, we have our destructive habits and our skewed perspectives. And what was happening is when this little church was gathering together in Corinth, Paul, the author of our letter, says it's, they, they were actually worse for wear because of their gathering together. And that sounds strange to some, or maybe because of some church services you've sat through, it makes total sense, you know, either way, depending on your background. But it all comes down to this one word. Why is there this dysfunction? What is going on in this community? Why is Paul saying that they're actually worse when they gather together rather than better? It comes down to the fact of barriers. Barriers. We live in a world of barriers. And it's sad to say... (laughs) 
that the middle school lunchroom experience can kind of become a commentary for the rest of life, right? Some of us may remember those moments uh, painfully, more painful for some of us than others. For me, if you can imagine a young boy from Mississippi with a comb over and a southern drawl, (laughs) moving to Ohio and going to a private school, the lunchroom was not an inviting place, okay? When you came in, you had the cool table and then you had every other table. And the rest of life is kind of that way, divided with the ins and the outs. It's just now we're a bit older. For example, CareerBuilder did a recent survey and found that almost half of their participants noted the presence of clicks in their workplace. I want you to listen to some of these stats. They said 21% watched a certain TV show or movie just so they'd be able to discuss it at work. It had nothing to do with them liking it. They just wanted to have something to talk about. 19% made fun of someone else or pretended to like someone or not to like someone. 17% pretended to like certain food. 9% took smoke breaks just to have people to hang out with. Meanwhile, 1 in 7, 15%, it's quick math, right? Actually, it's right here, said they hid their political affiliation. 10% don't reveal, reveal personal hobbies. And 9% hide their religious affiliation for fear of being excluded. And that's our workspaces, right? Then if you go more broadly and you watch the news, we hear about glass ceilings. We hear about cultural boundaries, racial, educational, or economic barriers. More and more barriers. And I think most of us in here know the problem. We, we've seen the damage of inequality. We've, we've heard the cries of injustice. And many of us may have even heard or felt the pain of rejection in our workspaces. So the question lingers, what do we do? Well, Christianity's answer to the barriers this world erects all around us has been the same answer for thousands of years, and it's the same answer for us today, and that's bread and wine. And that may sound ridiculous to some, but it's simply true. One common meal, sharing common bread and common juice. It's come with a lot of names throughout the millennia, right? You've got the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, Some sip it, some dip it, some spill it. You know, like when I was in high school and I was sitting there, my church had the cups with the juice in it. And I remember they said, now meditate on Christ's blood shed for you. And I broke the cup. I must have been meditating pretty intense. And the juice got all over my khakis. Hi, I'm Gabe. I'm a klutz, right? It was like, it didn't stir good community for me in that situation. But regardless of your form and how you partake of the Lord's Supper, there's something about this one meal that gives us the capacity to tear down any barrier. There's something about this one meal that somehow enables healing in every wound. There's something about this one common meal that we find the source for genuine apology and lasting forgiveness. It's when we gather together and we partake that this one meal breaks down every barrier. One meal breaks every barrier. But how, right? How does that help me with my manipulative sibling, my backstabbing friend? How does that help me with my dishonorable coworker, an estranged parent? How does that break down those barriers? Well, let's look and see. To do that with you, would you please turn with me in your Bible? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you haven't already. And Paul right at the get-go is pretty ticked. 
It's easy to pick up on Paul's tone in our passage, isn't it? In chapter 11, verse 17, something that was supposed to be life-giving, life-altering, is actually destroying this church. And Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And verse 18 on, he begins to detail what's exactly happening in this church. Read with me, if you would. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I love that Paul has that, like, what? He's even he's so, so shocked. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? What do you want me to say to you? What, what, what's going on here? Well, Sundays in the ancient, or specifically the first century world, weren't a day off like we have today. Instead, they were a normal work day in the Roman Empire. And still the church gathered together on Sundays in the first century to remember the resurrection of Jesus. And so they would gather together oftentimes either before work or more often after work. And they would have communion. It was a little more elaborate than we often partake of here or in most traditions. It was less of a snack and more of a full-on meal, kind of like a potluck where everybody brought something to share. And at some point within the meal, the climax wasn't the roast beef. Okay, the climax was when the bread was broken to remember Christ's body broken for us and the cup was shared similarly to how we do weekly here at Christ Community. And there's a lot about this Corinthian church that's very similar, especially to our downtown campus. It was an urban atmosphere and they experienced economic diversity within the congregants who came and were a part of that church such that the wealthy and the well-to-do could get out of work early, or maybe since they were supervising, others didn't have to go in for the same sort of work day. And so they would come to church early. And look, I want to affirm coming to church early anytime, okay, right? But they would come to church early, and they would start hammering the food and the drink. And by the time the lower class, and potentially even some of the slaves, would get off work or be freed from their master to come and partake, the wealthier were in a food coma, and we're drunk, Paul says. And the shock that Paul has is the shock that we have. And those who are of lower class would barely come with enough to share, or really barely enough for themselves, let alone some to share. And you have this picture of this major divide of the ins and the outs. You have the rich table feasting, going into a food coma, getting drunk, and then you had the poor table barely making ends meet for another day. Paul's horrified. And he says, don't call that the Lord's Supper, okay? Don't try to fool yourself into thinking that you're actually worshiping God in the midst of this. Because when you gather together, you actually become worse, not better. You're dragging Jesus' name through the mud by saying, hey, when we eat together, we're proclaiming what Jesus is all about. Jesus isn't about this. But what's hard to see, at least when I first read this passage, is that this was very common in the society of the first century. Anybody ever watch Downton Abbey? Anyone? Any fans? Oh yeah, I'm a Downton Abbey fan. And what's so wonderful about Downton Abbey is it shows us how just as recent as the early 20th century, 
you would have this divide between the servant class and the nobility there, right? And the servant class was not allowed to eat with the nobility. Even those within the servant class would be ashamed if someone in the servant class even assumed to think that they would be allowed to eat in the nobility or the upper class. There was a social divide, and it was just assumed that's the way things went. But Paul wants us to know that this is just the way it is, is never good enough for the church. Oh, this is just the way it is. That's never good enough for the church, even if that's just the way it was in first century Corinth. Look, even though this may seem really obvious and even outlandish to us from our 21st century perspective, the first thing we need to grasp with this text that each and every one of us needs to hear this morning is that we're all expert barrier builders. We're all expert barrier builders. Every single one of us. Our barriers may be a little more subtle, but we're just as good at ignoring how they separate and divide us consistently. I think one of the reasons we're so blind to some of our barriers has to do with the unique culture we find ourselves in. A while back, NPR's Marketplace um, had a marketing agent on, and this person said, beware of your environment if you don't want to be manipulated by it. Be aware of your environment if you don't want to be manipulated by it because there is nothing neutral. Everything, every message, every commercial, every show is sending a message. Be aware of your environment and how you're living and what messages you just automatically buy into so that you're not manipulated by it. So how is that true for us? One thing I think that's unique about us as being in an American culture is that we aren't born into a tribe or a clan. We get to opt in or opt out of various communities. And if we opt out, there's not the same level of shame or loss that you find in many other cultures. And so we actually now gather that over to the church where we feel like we can dive in and dive out of various communities. And so when we come into the church, and I'm in danger of this too, we can come in and start thinking, okay, how am I going to create the community I want? Right? And there's nothing wrong with pursuing friendships and finding commonalities. But if we're not careful, the dangerous side of that is all of a sudden your community looks exactly like you. They think like you. They act like you. They're the same age as you, the same social status, the same economic status, the same marital status. And we find that we've created this community that mirrors what we think is best, which is us, which is me. The problem is that this goes right against the grain of what the church is designed to be. The church isn't a self-selecting organization. We get to pick everything else, our friends, our bank, our grocery, the neighborhood we live in. But God is the one who brings his church together. And even though there may be folks who come from different perspectives, we are called now to love and serve everyone who's in the church community whether they have different political affiliations, different perspectives on cultural change, we're called to love and to serve. Because God's the one who brings us together. Any barrier, no matter how subtle it is, is actually an affront to what God is building in his church. And if that's true, if we take that seriously, then we need to do the hard work of locating our barriers. Locate our barriers. Notice I didn't say if you have barriers. 
We're all expert barrier builders. Every single one of us. Where are yours? And because this is hard to navigate, because they can be so subtle, I want to ask a couple of diagnostic questions, okay, to help us here. And the first is, who do you avoid at church? <laughs> who do you avoid at church? And I know you're thinking, this is a smaller campus. We've talked two services. It's kind of hard. Oh, it's hard, but it's possible, right? You know, you've still got a front and a back, and you can still squeeze out the back so you don't have to see that one person. Maybe it's in community group. It's the person who takes themselves a little too seriously, person who doesn't ever take themselves seriously enough. They're just hard to connect with. And then suddenly you find yourself organizing these smaller private gatherings with everybody but them. Who do you avoid at church? Another way of asking this is who is them to you? Who is them to you? And, and you know what I'm talking about. It's those people. They are the them. They're the the ones that you're always against, whether it be the Republicans or whether it be the Democrats or maybe more broadly those flaming liberals or those annoying conservatives, right? There's always those people. And it could even be a whole class of people. I don't think any of us has the right to be so naive as to think that we're immune from racial or socioeconomic prejudice in here. None of us has that right. Who are those people who is them to you and maybe a backdoor approach because we've got really good defenses that helps us say oh no i don't have a them in my life let's let's go a backdoor approach whose opinions do you take seriously and then start listing those names and notice their cultural background their educational status their marital status are they all the same? If they are all the same, you're losing out. And we've got these barriers we've built in our lives such that we only listen to a very small microcosm of the people of God. Look, there are a lot of questions we could ask, but we need to do the hard work of locating our barriers. We're all expert barrier builders. And this frustrates the Apostle Paul and it enrages God in an appropriate holy sense when he sees his people disregarding one another. He doesn't want that for us as the church. And so, if we are expert barrier builders, what are your barriers? Now, there's one thing to, to name your barriers, to identify them, but it's a completely other thing to start going about breaking down those barriers, right? Because that takes work, that takes energy. And oftentimes, I feel like someone using glass tools against a steel wall so what can we do to start tearing down those barriers? And Paul wants us to know that Jesus broke the only barrier that matters. Jesus broke the only barrier that matters. And I know that's a contentious statement, but let's look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now where does Paul get this from? Well, Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, had one final meal with his closest followers. And in that meal, he gave instructions for them to continue to have a similar meal and how to do that meal when they do it regularly. 
And Paul wants us to know that the Lord's Supper that we partake in regularly is actually pointing us back to the Last Supper. But he doesn't stop there, because where does the Last Supper come from? The Lord's Supper points us back to the Last Supper, which points us back to Passover. There's a unique connection all the way back to God's redemptive work throughout the history of the world. In the book of Exodus, some of you may be familiar with this story, Um, In the book of Exodus, we hear how the Passover came about. There was this list of plagues that God had enacted against the nation of Egypt that was enslaving and abusing his people Israel. And the last of the list of the plagues was the plague of the firstborn. And God said there's only one way of escape from this plague. The only way of escape is to slaughter a lamb and to coat your door frame with its blood. That probably wouldn't jive with our homeowners associations today, would it? So if, if you have your doorframe coated with the blood of the lamb, then when the angel of death came, instead of taking the life of the firstborn son, the angel of death would pass over that home. And of course, we may be familiar with that story. I mean, Christian Bale just did a movie, The Exodus, right? Who doesn't love Christian Bale? You know, Charleston Heston before that. You know, you, you, we know these stories, whether in church or in media. But if we're not careful, Hollywood, with all of its glam, can actually blind us to the radical social, cultural, and religious statement that God is making in this story. For one night, it didn't matter who you were. Jew, Egyptian, young, Old, man, woman, free, slave, poor, rich, you either lost a lamb or you lost a son. And we hold on to our barriers that we build. We build these structures of affirmation to prove our superiority and keep ourselves or set ourselves apart from the rest of the pack. We organize and define our lives by the relationships we have or the accomplishments we've done. And the Passover undoes all of that because none of that can keep you from the angel of death. You see, we're all in the same spiritual starting point under God's wrath and his judgment because being created beings, we do not belong to ourselves, But we've rebelled against our creator God and told him, hey, you know what? I'm finite, but I think I know what's best in this situation. Instead of trusting the wisdom of an infinite God with our lives. And so in our treason against the creator God who is king over the universe, we deserve death. And we must pay it either with our blood or the blood of a substitute who dies in our place. And when we come to Jesus, he reminds us there's only one barrier that really matters. If you look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, he actually presses against most of the cultural barriers in the first century. Not all of them, but many of them. And you find that Jesus actually invites women to a greater role of empowerment within his discipleship. We see that Jesus goes after the outcasts, the poor, and the downtrodden. We see that Jesus actually heals Gentiles as well as Jews. We see that Jesus, when engaging the murderer, the thief, the prostitute, And the tax collector goes through all the social barriers to chase after them and to communicate his love for them. But out of all of those barriers, there's one that really matters. And that's what Paul wants the church in Corinth to know. That's what he wants every church thereafter to really grasp that in the Lord's Supper, this message is told to our fingertips and our lips 
that there's one barrier that matters. And it has been broken. It has been demolished. And every other barrier is exposed for, the, for its basis in human pride when this one barrier comes crumbling down. Why do we have arguments? Why do we have divisions within culture? Why are we separated with races and genders and age groups and socioeconomic status? It all comes down to pride. People want to be seen better than the other. And what ultimately, of course there are sociological factors, but ultimately what has sparked those sociological factors and separates us is what's within us, our pride. When we're unwilling to forgive, we're unwilling to move on, we're unwilling to humble ourselves to serve, we're unwilling to go the extra mile because I am above that. Pride. And every time you take and eat of the Lord's table, you remember that each and every one of us without God's grace that freely comes in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we deserve an eternity apart from Him and we are doomed unless the blood covers us. We do not have a hopeful future. And this returns us back to why Paul's so livid that the church in Corinth, they're eating the Lord's Supper and they've got these divisions. And you go to chapter 1, verse 27, and Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul's basically saying, hey, if you keep eating the Lord's Supper the way you've been doing it, it's kind of like spitting in Jesus' face when he's on the cross and you're re-crucifying him all over again. No, Jesus, your, your death is pretty neat. That was helpful over here, but this part of my life, I'm fine. Thanks. I think we can have these divisions and I'm okay. I'm going to keep this grudge and I'll be fine. No, your blood's really neat. And so we trample on his grace when we come to the table and expect him to ignore that we aren't ignoring or forgiving the, the brokennesses in our own life. And if you're anything like me, if that's what it means to be unworthy or to partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, I want to know what does it look like to partake in the Lord's Supper in a way that's worthy of Jesus, right? How do we do this in such a way that we actually glorify God? And it all comes down to one word, remember. We've got the one word of barriers and we've got the one word of remember. Since Jesus breaks the only barrier that matters, then you need to remember what has already been broken on your behalf. Remember what's already been broken on your behalf. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, when you guys get together, I just want you to have some big feasts, period. Go throw a party. No, what he says is, every time you eat this meal, do this in remembrance of me. Christ is explicitly at the center that is what makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper, is remembering Him while we partake. Communion is synonymous with remembering. And just to be clear, remembering isn't just recalling information either. Okay, if, if after Mother's Day, you know, tomorrow or the day after, your mom calls you and says, <clears throat> Honey, I don't know what happened, but you never called me or sent me a card on Mother's Day. Did, why did you forget about Mother's Day? <laughs> Oh, mom, I never forgot. I just didn't give you a call. 
Is that real remembering? What good is that for anyone? Instead, remembering is recalling information and responding to that information. It requires action. Action. Remembering Jesus in the Lord's Supper means it will engage you physically, it will engage you emotionally, it will engage you relationally, it will engage you psychologically. There's nothing about who you are that is not engaged when we come and we remember in our response in the Lord's Supper. If you come to the Lord's Supper with bitterness or anger or indifference in your heart, you're not remembering Jesus has died for you. And you might as well not come and partake. That's what Paul's saying. Remember that Jesus was broken for us. And what that does is it gives us a whole new imagination, even while we're waiting in the communion lines, right? The communion lines aren't a place where we're waiting for the next person to hurry up and gobble down the bread. But they're a moment for us to now see ourselves in the spiritual bankruptcy line. Each and every one of us has overcharged our account. We've transgressed, and we have a debt that is too big for any one of us to pay. And when we come to the Lord's table, we remember we don't give anything at the Lord's table. We just receive, right? It's a moment where we have to come in dependence that we are not capable of handling it ourselves. And that we're not better than anyone. And I mean anyone. Even if Hitler was in that line with you, we would find ourselves equally spiritually bankrupt and needing of the gospel. It's not just about remembering that Jesus died. It's about remembering why he died, that he died for you and for me. And even as I say that, there's this temptation for those who've been in the church for a while to zone out. Um, if you're newer to the church, this may be really helpful for you. Oh, that's how communion kind of fits into the community of faith and navigating how that ebbs and flows as we gather together. But if you've been in the church for a while, there's a point where we can start to say, I've heard this message before. Yeah, 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 get on with the music, pastor man. Let's move it on, right? Um, I know the meal's coming. I get it. I know how to do it. I know what I'm supposed to think about. But here's the deal the Corinthians did too. This isn't new news that Paul is giving them. It's because they weren't following instructions. It's not that they needed new information. They just didn't take the table seriously. And what Paul says here in verse 27, let's repeat back up to verse 27. We'll go through verse 34. Is illuminating. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself. Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul's saying that there are folks within this little urban church in Corinth who are sick and have died because they didn't take the Lord's Supper serious. Now, okay, as a kid, this freaked me out, just to be clear. (laughs) 
I used to, I used to think that if, we, if I came and took a communion without confessing every little specific sin, then I was going to have like a Raiders of the Lost Ark moment, like where I look inside the ark unworthily and my face would melt off. That's not what God's talking about in this passage, that if you come and abuse the Lord's table once, you're going to die on the spot. And many of you have proven this time and again. Sorry. Uh, so have I. It went over a lot better in first service. It was a joke. It was a joke. All right. It was a joke. Um, but, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. What Paul is communicating is that God will go to any lengths to wake us up to our sin. God will go to any lengths to wake us up to our sin. Why? Because he's more just than we are. Injustice frustrates him more than it frustrates us. We can see news channel after news channel and do nothing where God can't. God is more broken over what sin does to our lives and the lives of those around us that he will not just sit back and wait. But he works. And that would be a terrifying thought if it was just that God was more just than us. But the reality is that he loves us more than we love ourselves. When the good thing is before us and we don't have the courage, the strength, or humility to receive it, God works to wake us up. And God disciplines us for our good is the language that Paul uses. Because God loves us better than we love ourselves and he's more just than we are. And so he pursues our good in ways that we never could. And as long as we're still breathing, it's not too late to remember. As long as we're having conversation, it's not too late to remember. But how do we do that? How do we do that? I want to give you two critical ways in which we can practice worthy remembrance when we come to the Lord's Supper. And you're going to get an opportunity to practice those here in a few minutes. And they come right here from the Apostle Paul. First, he says, examine yourself. Another way of saying this is repent. Think back to those diagnostic questions from earlier. What are the barriers you have in your life that you've placed between relationships, between different kinds of people? Maybe it's not there. Maybe it's something else in your life. But the table is open to the repenting heart, the one who is humble enough to admit that they have failures, the one who's humble enough to say, I don't have my life together that I have played a part in ruining people's lives or have played a part in ruining relationships. The table is not a place for the arrogant heart. And so this morning, if there is pride or there is arrogance, lay it down and pick up the bread. This morning, if there is greed or sexual immorality that consumes your heart, lay it down and pick up the bread. This morning, if there's indifference, prejudice, or hate, Latent within your heart, lay it down and pick up the bread because God is eager to forgive and he's eager to help all who come longing to look for his assistance. And week by week, we're training ourselves to be a people to lay everything aside and hold on to him and him alone. The supper becomes a form of discipline in which we are spiritually formed as people. But not only first do we examine ourselves, secondly, we discern the body. And when Paul says this in verse 29, he's saying, practice unity within the church community. Discern the body of Christ, the church. 
Whether it's an argument that happened in community group that's remained unresolved. Maybe there's a discussion that led to a dispute with a family member or a friend that's begun to fester. Forgive and admit your own faults in that situation. It's time to let it go and pick up the bread. Maybe this morning you say, well, I haven't talked with my father for years or I haven't talked with my mom for years. I haven't seen this sibling for decades. I haven't talked with this friend since college and still there's this animosity. Plan this morning, this week, to chase them down. Pursue forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation for their good and for yours. Don't let bitterness swallow you up. That's one of the great gifts of the Lord's Supper is it comes bringing freedom if we let it. But whatever you do, don't wait. Don't wait. We're all expert barrier builders and Jesus has broken the only barrier that matters. So let those barriers come crumbling down. Don't wait. Take this meal seriously. One meal breaks every barrier. And I want you to imagine what would it look like if we did that seriously as Paul's called us to, as God's word calls us to for our good. Singles would not feel the same level of ostracization that they feel constantly within the church in the United States because we would go and we'd tear down those barriers. One of the common uh, counsels I give to newlywed couples actually when they're doing their premarital counseling is to remember your calling to singles. Because so many times, and this happens to almost every person who gets married, when you become a, a young married couple or a, a married couple, you naturally start shifting to other married couples. It's just a normal flow. And then those who are your single friends feel like, what happened? And they feel like they get left in the dust. Instead, when, when new couples get married, a key vocational calling is to now continue to be zealous in the life of singles and allow singles to continue to be zealous in your life and in your marriage. This is critical. If we took the supper seriously, we'd put those barriers aside and we'd find a place where both singles and marrieds would actually flourish better together. We'd also find a place where those who are homeless within our downtown would feel less pushed aside. And the church wouldn't be a place where, of course, the church is going to look down on me and have pity on me, but they would actually be a part of the community, enriched and their dignity affirmed. It'd be a place where relationships would be restored at the longest every week. Because forgiveness and the, the, the uh, extension of forgiveness would always be offered. And you know what that would do? That would cultivate an atmosphere of authenticity because people would know that forgiveness is a part of the culture. That yeah, I'm going to fail in this relationship, but I know that we're going to work towards forgiveness and reconciliation. But not only authenticity, we'd come with a greater tone of humility. Because each and every one of us know we contribute to those divisions and those broken relationships. If we took the Lord's table seriously and what it calls us to, it could transform us as, as a church. If we will just take the time to remember together that those who proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have the promise that God will remember their sins no more. And where the richness of that remembrance comes streaming in as although he may remember the facts, he treats us now as Jesus, perfect, spotless, righteous lamb.
That's what God does. While we were his enemies, God pursued us. And he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again and offer everlasting life to all who have the humility to receive it. Praise God he didn't wait with us, right? Let's pray. In one sense, God, we come to a really familiar component to the Christian life, the Lord's table, and yet there's so much mystery in which you form us as people as we follow your commands. May we remember this morning. May you guide us in the truth of the gospel. If there is estranged relationships within family or friends or within this church, may your Holy Spirit convict us to bring about the beauty of reconciliation. And may our greatest passion, may that be fueled because of what you've done for us. While we were yet sinners, that's when you died for us. May the table be a constant reminder and form us as a community. May we remember, in Jesus' name, amen.